This morning's scripture reading is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. If you were here last Sunday for Easter, we were reading from Mark 16, the final verses of that chapter concerning the resurrection. But we're going all the way back to chapter 10 today to look at a passage that occurs at a crucial point in the uh, unveiling of Jesus' identity. This is the third time in Mark that he tells his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die. And on the heels of that, here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, he deals with a, a request from two very ambitious young men who happen to be two of his closest disciples, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And it's interesting that this is also the third time that Jesus has talked about... Um, their relationship to power and structure and influence and what it means to be a part of his kingdom. In chapter 8, he calls them to take up the cross if they want to be his follower. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. And then he says, but if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, he says, you will save it. That is Mark 8. 34 and 35. And then in Mark 9, there's this interesting encounter where they have been along the road talking. They arrive in Capernaum and they go into a house and Jesus takes a seat and the disciples uh, sit down around him. And he basically says, guys, what were you talking about on the road as we made our way here? And they were silent. They said nothing. And then he says, basically, I know what you were doing. You were arguing with one another over who is the greatest in my kingdom. And that's when he says this. For the Son of Man, uh, excuse me, he says, uh, whoever wants to be first must take last place and the servant of everyone else. And then here in Mark 10, our key verse is verse 45, which we'll see in a moment. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. So let's uh, listen now to God's word from Mark 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others 
and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. And let's pray now for the Holy Spirit to come and to be our teacher and our guide. We do welcome you, Holy Spirit. Uh, You are the one Jesus promised to lead us and to guide us and to teach us the truth of God. And we pray now that you would come and convict us of our sin and convince us of, of the truth and then empower us as we go forth from this place to live differently to have transformed lives by some degree as we embrace and obey the Word of God. Thank you for for the truth, Holy Spirit, that you have inspired, spoken through your servant Mark. And it's in his, his name, in Jesus' name, that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Connie and I really enjoy British drama. I don't know, inside of me, I think there's this secret longing that if I could get rid of this southern drawl, I would speak like I was from England. Um, They sound smarter, more sophisticated, and there's just something about uh, these British dramas that are also different from what we see on American television. We are big fans of The Crown on Netflix. And we've also been watching Victoria on PBS. And and I am personally fascinated with this idea of royalty. That someone is given absolute claim to rule and reign over a people simply because they were born into a certain family. It's kind of ludicrous when you stop and think about it that people are willing to surrender a certain amount of their freedom and their allegiance to someone who just happens to be a descendant of a family that more than likely took power uh, by force in time of war. But that is the way it is in certain places of the world, even in the 21st century. And for a very few, a very few in our world, birthright bestows privilege. And even though we Americans rejected the British monarchy, what, almost 250 years ago with the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence... Uh, The fact is we are still, many of us, infatuated with the British royal family. For example, last year about this time, uh, Meghan Markle, the American actress and uh, model, married Harry, Prince Harry of, of the royal family, and it was watched by 30 million people in the United States. I was one of them. I was really interested in hearing what... uh, Michael Curry, who is the uh, Episcopal leader of the Episcopal Church in America, what he had to say, and he did not disappoint. He had a great sermon. But uh, we are interested in royalty. We're intrigued by their lives and uh, their lifestyles. My great, 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 great grandparents, they were Gallagher's, were plantation owners in rural East Tennessee prior to and during the Civil War. And during the Second World War, uh, the U.S. government, the federal government, by the, the law of eminent domain, came in and took thousands of acres of farmland from my family, my, my, my ancestors, as well as others that lived in this little community called Wheat. In its place 
uh, after they destroyed all the homes and, and barns, they left the cemeteries intact, they built these research facilities in a new town, a new city called Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was uh, the genesis for the development of the atomic bomb. And it was on this land that my dad grew up as a little boy. It is also on this land where a very large family cemetery contains the graves of dozens of my ancestors, my, my Gallagher ancestors. And most astonishing for me when I visited this cemetery 20 years ago with our boys, really probably 25 years ago, uh, I discovered that there is another Gallagher cemetery that um, has an iron fence around it, a historical marker at the gate, that was the burial place for all the slaves. There are, in fact, scores of slaves buried in mostly unmarked graves. There are no tombstones as there are in the family cemetery with people's names and date of birth and date of death on them, scriptures and other things. There are just plain rocks that are in the earth that... that mark someone's grave. But most of these graves, which are under, underneath this canopy of trees... Uh, in this large fenced-in area, that is where these African-American slaves are buried. My ancestors, uh, my great-great-great-great-grandfather um, owned 19 slaves, according to a census, uh, a federal census of that time in the mid-1850s, uh, uh, 40s and 50s. Children born to those slaves that lived on my ancestors' plantation, had no freedom, no human rights, and no hope of a future apart from whatever my ancestors would have granted, would, would have given them. In fact, a copy of my great-great-great-great-grandfather's will, George Burham Gallagher, divides up his slaves, including their little children, who were also considered slaves, among his own children when he died. Now children that are born into the house of Windsor are entitled to a life of privilege and uh, wealth, a royal title, the best possible education imaginable, as well as countless other opportunities. And they all come to them, are bestowed to them immediately the day they are born. And persons like uh, Meghan Markle, who married Prince Harry, uh, came into this royal family, automatically uh, gets some of that privilege and opportunity. She was given the title Duchess of Sussex. And her baby, their first child, is born any day. Could be born today. She is ready. She is due this very weekend. Uh, this will be the seventh in line the child that is seventh in line for the British throne. Even though this child, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, this child is a descendant of African-American slaves here in the United States that worked cotton fields in Georgia. Now when the Duchess arrived at her first solo event uh, in a luxury automobile that was chauffeured, 
uh, and that had other servants on board to be with her when, when she, she arrived. Uh, the door was opened for her by the chauffeur. She came out of, out of the car and just out of habit, she shut the door behind her. That was a breach of protocol. And there were people that criticized her. This American uh, who is now in the royal family doesn't, doesn't know how a royal is supposed to behave. Uh, the door should have been shut for her. Some thought it was down to earth and humble. Others said, well, if she keeps doing that, somebody's going to lose their job. Some servant is going to be unemployed. A family of, of privilege, of power, and of wealth that rules a nation. This, this is a, a real eye-opener, I'm sure, for her and for others like her that have become a part of this family. What kind of family were you born into? Were, were there any privileges? Were there perks that came with being a part of that family? Were, were there uh, some doors open for you? Did, did you, your family have some influence in your community? Or were you somebody that had to fight and scrape and earn the respect and the acceptance of others? When Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of Israel was born, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he came into the world and was born in a working class, maybe an impoverished family, but certainly no better than a working class family whose breadwinner was a carpenter, a construction worker, probably laid bricks and helped in the building of homes and furniture and other things. This was Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, in a very small, obscure village of one to two hundred people. Uh, his heavenly father, Jesus' heavenly father, in contrast, is the creator of the universe. And yet, Jesus, being the Son of God, was enfleshed as this poor child in this obscure village, laying aside all of his divine glory and privilege and power in order to dwell among us. St. Augustine, who lived 1,500 years ago, wrote this poem about this royal birth of Jesus. He said, Maker of the Son, He is made under the Son. In the Father He remains, from His mother He goes forth. Creator of heaven and earth, He was born on earth under heaven. Unspeakably wise, He is wisely speechless. Filling the world, He lies in a manger, Ruler of the stars, he nurses at his mother's bosom. He is both great in the nature of God and small in the form of a servant. I love that last couple of lines. Great in the nature of God, Jesus was, but he was small in the form of a servant. And so today we begin this multi-week series on service, on what it means to serve, to be a servant in the church, but also in the kingdom of God and in the world beyond the church. Uh, this, this word and its derivative, serve or servant, uh, is found over a thousand times in the Bible. Think about that. It occurs more often than the word grace, the, more, more than the word salvation, 
more than the word love, the word serve is one of the major themes of, of the scriptures. And, and it's my opinion that virtually every challenge that we face as a church and as a community and beyond in our nation, the challenges that we face in families, in marriages and with our kids, uh, has something to do with answering a call to serve. That this is a key that unlocks relationships in a way that makes them mutually satisfying and joyful. Something that is very fulfilling, this idea of being a servant, whether it's in the home, in the workplace, in the church, or in the world at large. And so we're going to explore the many dimensions of servanthood. And the place to start is the example of Jesus Christ. Now let me just say that in my lifetime, I feel like that that the church has been pulled along by the culture in some directions that we should have never gone. Part of it is, is trying to accommodate people that are unchurched to, to help them find a place of comfort and welcome and acceptance. But because of consumerism, American consumerism, the church has, has often become something other than the church. Um, a place that people are to come for worship uh, has now been kind of upgraded to like a, a, an experience of, of entertainment. Uh, I've, I've met a lot of people who've told me that, that they like our church, but it's a little too small for them. They are looking for something bigger where they can be anonymous, and no one will ask them to do anything. I've had other people tell me that, that they really uh, want a place that has more to offer than we do. Uh, they like it that churches have restaurants now and cafes and some even have health clubs and coffee bars and convenient parking and comfortable seats and, and child care for everything at all times that goes on in the church. And this is a uniquely American phenomenon that you don't see in other parts of the world. And I think it has very little to do with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because the call of Jesus, as we see in the scripture, is to a lifestyle of sacrifice and service. Now, don't get me, get me wrong. God loves you as an individual. And Jesus died for you personally. But please don't understand God's purpose, his greater purpose for your life is simply to meet your needs and your wants. It's not that at all. The Bible is not about how God can meet all the needs and wants of my life. It's about coming in sync with what God wants and what God needs and allowing Him to use my life to advance His kingdom and to build His church, to be an instrument of His grace and His love and His peace, His shalom in the world today. And this is one of the reasons why that I really encourage parents to let their children go on uh, mission trips. I mean, it's a far better thing that your kids be involved in some kind of servant ministry on a regular basis than some sporting activity or dance club or, or some other church, I mean, school activity. Um, because it's through those experiences that people encounter the real world and people in need. And they learn to sacrifice their own comfort and their own needs and their own wants and desires in order to meet the needs, the desperate needs of people in our world. 
who have a variety of complications in their lives that, that a lot of our kids don't ever experience or know. And this is one of the reasons I think that my sons have pursued uh, professions that uh, are, are very much centered around helping and caring for others. One is a pastor, been involved in inner city, city ministry now for a decade in North Lexington. The other one uh, is, is a surgeon now, and he is going to be directing this um, Malawian surgical initiative. And probably, you know, a couple of months out of the year, one to two months out of the year, we'll be in Africa. Uh, helping to alleviate extreme suffering and poverty in that country. And, and this, is, this has been shaped by their experiences in Costa Rica and Paraguay and Kenya when they were teenagers and young adults. You know, we, we say frequently around here that our ministries need more volunteers, right? Have you ever said that? I've said it. But you know, it occurred to me this week that that we don't need more volunteers for kids on worship or for VBS or for Sunday school. Uh, we don't need more volunteers to help in the kitchen, cook meals and to clean up afterwards or to be involved in some other aspect of hospitality ministry. We don't need more volunteers uh, to help clean up the church on work days and all that. We don't need more volunteers. What we need are more servants. And there's a difference between a volunteer and a servant. And you're going to see that. It's going to get in your face. It's going to make you uncomfortable. But there's a difference between a volunteer and a servant. A volunteer often feels like they're doing you a favor <laughs> if they sign up for something. But a servant is someone who is committed to a lifestyle of giving their life away. And friends, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's to give your life away in His name, in, in the meeting of a wide variety of needs that are present in our world and the lives of individuals. I mean, the point of this sermon this morning is really simple. It doesn't have three points. Uh, it does have a poem. Uh, I've already read it. It has one point, and that point is simply this. You were born to serve, just like Jesus. That responsive reading that, that came out of Philippians chapter 2 that we read just a few moments ago tells us that when Jesus came into the world, he laid aside his divine privileges. He didn't see his divinity, his godness, as something that, that should be exploited. He became a servant. Paul says. And here in Mark 10, he tells these extremely ambitious disciples that the way to greatness is not up, but is down. And that those who want to be first have to be last. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life a ransom for many. And the word for serve is also translated servant in verse 43. And in the Greek language, it means someone that does a menial task. We see Jesus doing a menial task in the upper room the night before he was crucified, don't we? He got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. This menial task of service here simply means waiting tables. Taking food to people where they sit and then taking their dirty dishes to the kitchen. 
That's the basic meaning of the word. And the word ransom, to give his life a ransom for many, this word ransom refers to the idea of buying a slave or a prisoner of war. Uh, paying a ransom for them so they can be set free. And the implications of this metaphor here in, in Mark chapter 10 is that we are enslaved. All of humanity is enslaved to sin and to our selfishness and our brokenness and our pain and our abuse and our horror, our, 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 our lives which are not God's best by any stretch of the imagination. All of us as slaves are set free because the payment for our release, an impossible payment we can never make for ourselves, has been paid on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't explain the atonement here. He doesn't give us a theory of how it works. He just simply tells us, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lay down my lives, my life, and, and I want you to do the same thing, the same thing. And this is something that is not easily learned, and it certainly does not come natural to us. Um, Cheryl Bockelder until just 2017, was the CEO of Popeye's uh, Louisiana Kitchen. We've got one just down the street from us, right? Some of you probably eat at Popeye's. Um, she turned this company around over a decade ago by doing basically one thing. She, as a Christian, as a committed Christian, focused the culture of Popeye's around serving others. Her book, Dare to Serve, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others, would be a good textbook for any church to read. She says the Bible verse that is on her calendar that she read every single morning was Philippians 2.3, which says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And she says, I need to read those words every day because she said, that does not come naturally to me. She says, in fact, I'm of the opinion that we are all born with an inner two-year-old. Now, some of us know adults that are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old that are still two-year-olds living in an adult body, right? They're more interested in having their needs met having their way done than doing the will of God, laying their lives down for others. She says that this self-absorption is hardwired into every one of us. And she said it's hard to fake that for long as a CEO if you're trying to pretend to be a servant and you're really not. And so every single day she devoted herself to living out a servant leadership lifestyle in that company. And of course, it, it won a lot of folks over and influenced a lot of people. My grandson Ezra is two years old, and I am praying for him a lot. Uh, he, he has got a wonderful spirit. He's joyful. He is fearless. He's not scared of anything, it seems. But when he decides he wants something, he is an unholy terror. And he demands it, and he pitches a fit, and sometimes has these, these epic 
temper tantrums uh, until he finally gives up and gives in. But, but that is not the way Ezra is going to be the rest of his life. We hope and pray. <laughs> we hope and pray. He has to learn the lifestyle of a servant as all of us do. I want to close with something I, I saw this week, which just rings true to me as someone who understands the scripture and the lifestyle of a servant. George Gallup, many years ago, did a survey of over 2,000 highly committed successful people. They were from all walks of life, all cultures, all different races and economic groups. He found that, that highly committed persons, persons that were really given over to something, um, had four distinct characteristics that distinguished them from the general population. He says highly committed persons are far happier than the general population. People that really believe in something, that are sold out to something, find more joy in their day-to-day -day lives. He says the highly committed persons had a stronger family life. Their marriages were stronger. Their divorce rates were lower than the general population. He said thirdly, and I thought this was very interesting. He said, thirdly, highly committed persons tend to be more tolerant and forgiving and accepting of people who are different from them, either politically or racially or culturally or even in their religion. And he said, finally, highly committed persons are far more involved in working within their communities than those that are uncommitted or nominally committed to something important in life. What he discovered is that people who are committed to servant living are people whose lives are more joyful and more fulfilled. And friends, this is what the scripture teaches. <laughs> this is what Jesus modeled for us. This is the lifestyle that, that will uh, bring you into greater maturity in Christ, but also bring greater joy and fulfillment and meaning and purpose to your life when you commit yourself to being a servant. I, I said this sermon is entitled Born to Serve. It really ought to be Born Again or Born Anew to Serve because it starts with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you invite Him into your life to be Lord of your life, to be the chief servant over your soul, then the Holy Spirit gives you a new nature, a new beginning, a fresh start. And it's that new nature, that new beginning, that enables you then to live into this servant lifestyle. And so as we bow our heads for prayer and we prepare to sing our last song, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you will move in this moment and in the days ahead in this congregation, and that you would raise up some true servants of Jesus who are willing to give up their lives in order to gain the kingdom more fully. And this we pray in your name. Amen.